Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Mark and Sarah talk about songs. They talk, talk, talk about, talk about songs. Hello and welcome to episode number 65 of Mark and Sarah Talk About Songs. With me, as always, is my fantastic co-host, Sarah D. Bunting. Hello, Sarah. Hello. Hello. And I am your co-host, Mark Blankenship. And today, Sarah has brought to the table the song that we shall be discussing. So, Sarah, what is the hit you've arranged for us today? Um, I have arranged for us to hear a little selection from West Side Story, West Side Story called Somewhere. Uh, I'm not sure why I picked... This song over, we had been talking, uh, Mark and I, about how we hadn't done a song from a musical in quite some time, and I thought that a song from West Side Story would be fantastic just to discuss as kind of a jumping off point about that show Mm. and that book and why it does or doesn't work and why the whole tends to be for me much greater than the sum of the parts and particularly the movie which is speaking of beautiful disasters as we often do uh but yeah i like i gravitated straight to somewhere even though it's a quite a brief interlude uh in the show and as a song uh the like even the sung parts are quite quite short um but i thought it might be interesting to discuss given uh, our respective backgrounds with and feelings about musical theater so without further ado let's listen to a clip yes few uh uninformed thoughts about this uh about this track but uh mark i'd like to hear from you first about what you think about this song and the show in general in fact huh well west side story i don't care about it it means (laughs) nothing to me i kind of don't like any musicals of this period there's something about them all with the exception of musicals by Cole Porter, which I understand are decades earlier, but there's a certain soppiness, a sodden quality to musicals from this period that I find completely exhausting. The overt effort to be pretty, the classical edges around things that I feel like wipe emotion away, which I know is exactly the opposite of how most people feel. But for instance, all of the Sharks and Jets songs in this that are trying to be menacing are so silly to me. <laughs> yeah. So West Side Story is just, it's its of a piece with like Carousel and Oklahoma and Brigadoon and I, Camelot. I just don't care about shows like that. I love a lot of musicals. And again, 
Uh, Cole Porter is my one exception. And, you know, I have a soft spot for On the Town as well. Like those sort of plucky, fun musicals from the period, the sort of breezy shows, bells are ringing from that, from, from the golden age, which I understand covers multiple decades, but bear with me. I have a soft spot for the, for those, but the serious shows, I just find pretty fucking draining. And I'm like, if I'm going to listen to a Sondheim song, I'm never going to choose one from West Side Story. I'm going to go ahead and zip right on forward to the songs that he composed as well as with the lyrics for, because obviously Leonard Bernstein wrote the music for West Side Story. That said, West Side Story still demands to be discussed. I mean, there's so much about it that's worth talking about. And Somewhere is a very pretty melody. Like, I'll big ups to you, Leonard B., and it's no accident that this song has gone on to be covered by like five million different people, including, of course, Barbara Streisand. I feel like you can just hear Barbara Streisand in this song, even in the original version. Uh-huh. Um, so, yeah, I feel like this is a pretty song that makes me think of my grandmother wearing nice clothes and that I would not I'm not angry to hear this song but to me it's just representative of a whole era of musical theater that is not necessarily my jam that is fair um I feel like we talked about the recent um revival of it in which many of the songs were done in Espanol yes that that Lin-Manuel Miranda had translated into Spanish um I I seem to recall that you did not find it that update to have any point it didn't work for you is that that is correct yes okay that could just be the show itself um i brought my mother to see it uh it i think this is her favorite musical and this is part of why i have a fondness for it and for oklahoma uh poor judd is dead he's Um, poor judd is dead yes uh, that song freaked me out when I was a kid. That I mean, song is dark as fuck. Yeah. Also, it was four. And <laughs> and they're like moments away from burning a barn down. So, yeah, some shit gets yeah, crazy it's, in it. Yeah, it's tough. And then there's like a whole song where a character slut shames herself. <laughs> and it's not Sorry with the French on Top. Spoiler. Um, oh. So, Side Story, we went to it. And my mother is not like, my mother is not a Spanish speaker, but she's so sort of braided in with the show that you know in her life that it's not like she doesn't know what's being sung but when she and i were talking about it walking to the train it was like well but then you really have to wonder why everything isn't in espanol like these are these are spanish-speaking people they're puerto ricans like you assume like it just shines a light on the problematic parts of mm-hmm. the story instead of like fixing them mm-hmm. um, compared to the movie and the like offensive, you know, marron face that people are in and that the dude playing Tony is about as hetero as a crazy straw. And it's like, uh, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't work. It shouldn't work. It hasn't aged well by like 1972. It felt dated probably. Um, the Shakespeare basis does not add anything for me. Uh, no production of it ever seems to be able to grapple with the fact that like 
Tony and Maria are not where the juice is. Yeah, seriously. And particularly in the movie, um, who is the guy who plays Bernardo? Ch- George Chakiris. Oh, Chakiris. Um, and Rita Moreno, of course, uh, who is the be- remains the best. The two of them are who you care about. And also, could future productions just either delete anyways or murder <laughs> her on the stage? Like, actually murder someone. Like, I, she's the worst. She is the worst. Uh, but there is something about these songs that if you t- if you take them out of the show, they're very durable on their own. Mm, that's true. Uh, I feel pretty. Yep. I mean, like Julie Andrews can save pretty much this entire show and has. Because she also has a really good version of Somewhere. Yeah, she does. Um, the In America is a is a wonderful song. Like, that is true. The, but of course, you know, my parents are children of the 50s and apparently like, hey, Officer Krupke, Krupp you was like a, a scandalous when this when the show came out. And I was like, but it's not even funny. What? What? I don't. Why? And my dad's like, well, it was before fun was invented. And I was like, well, yeah. Ah, I see. <laughs> find out in a minute if there are any bullets left in Tony's gun, but for now, it's time for a pop chart astrology reading. Yes, that means it's time for me to predict a listener's destiny of success based on the song that was number one the day that they were born. And today's reading goes out to Brona and is brought to you by Matthew. So Matthew says, happy birthday to you, Brona, and I want you to know that you were born on July 27th, 1967. Well, you probably know that already, but I want you to know that the song that was number one the day that you were born is none other than Light My Fire by The Doors, which means that you were born under the sign of one of the most important celebrated and controversial rock and roll songs of all time. And before we get down to brass tacks and facts, let's take a sample listen of that big hit. You know that it would be untrue. You know that I would be a liar if I was to say to you, girl, we couldn't get much higher. Come on, baby, like my fire. Okay, where to begin with this song? Uh, First, it was the breakthrough hit for The Doors. It was number one for three weeks in 1967. And then the very next year, Jose Feliciano recorded a cover that went to number three, won him multiple Grammys, and brought the original version of the song back onto the charts as well. And this is the song that was famously sung by the Rollings, uh, by the Doors, on the Ed Sullivan Show. They refused to change some of the lyrics because the producers thought that they sounded like references to drug use and wanted them to change them. But they refused and were then told, you will never do the Ed Sullivan Show again! And apparently Jim Morrison responded, but we did Sullivan. And he was all, you know, cocky and full of vim and vigor and just what you want and a sexy bad boy rock star keeping up with that legacy. Later in the 70s, the song was sold to be used in a commercial by Buick, 
But Jim Morrison wasn't around to sign off on the deal. The rest of the band members did. And when he found out that this had happened, he said that he would destroy a Buick live on air if that commercial was made. So again, rock and roll cred, y'all. And I misspoke. That happened in 1968. But still, the point is, Jim Morrison was not having it. Interestingly, though, this song did not actually become a big hit around the world in the first time that it was released. Uh, It wasn't until it was re-released with the release of the movie The Doors in the early 90s that it reached the top 10 in the UK and actually became a number one hit in Ireland. So there was a bit of a delay, but it did become a big hit much later. And one little fun fact that I think is so interesting about this song is that of all things, a uh, professor at Brigham Brigham Young University noted that the song had for decades been released on albums played at the wrong speed, that it didn't sound the way it was supposed to sound. Um, it had been produced too slowly and therefore was in the wrong key, whatever, whatever. So the subsequent reissues of the song were changed to be released at the right speed and sound the way that the band wanted the song to sound. All of this says a lot to me, Brona, about your destiny of success, be it professional, personal or professional. There's a lot to be said here that you are going to find success if you stick to your guns. There will be so much pressure on you to change what it is that you want to do in some aspect of your life, but you have to hold on. And people are not always going to get it. People are going to sometimes get pissed at you. They're going to offer you all of these inducements to do something beyond your instincts, but you've got to hold on. And people may not get it uh, in terms of what you're trying to do for years, you know, yes, some people might get it right away. The hit, the song was a hit in America right away, but it wasn't until later that Britain got it, which means that you might have delayed gratification in terms of being understood. But the long game is one of reward for doing what you know to be correct. So hold tight, hold fast, and eventually people will start to hear you at the proper speed. So I hope that that reading is useful to you. And if you would like to have a reading of your own listeners or to have a reading done for someone that you love, just give us an email at talkaboutsongs at gmail.com and we can tell you how to get started. And now let's go back to Sondheim and West Side Story. I see. Actually... Other, like, Tonight is a wonderful song. Something's Coming is a great song. Yes. Like, you're right. If I really sit with it, hearing these songs in isolation is actually my preference. Yeah, mine too. And if you pull the songs out and sort of strip off some of the, like, trilly over-singing, like, Tonight is almost impossible, almost impossible to ruin. But... I've heard a version of it that's more of this, like, bluegrassy ballad. Like, imagine, uh, I love that we are always, like, fantasy casting Alison Krauss to sing songs. But if you imagined her just sort of sitting there with, like, a, you know, just like a snare drum and a piano and just singing, like, it becomes much more foreboding. Like, the song is very elastic and durable in itself and what can be done with it sitting through a whole show is i mean i absolutely hear what you're saying but like the musicals that when tara looked at my ipod 10 years ago and was like for someone who was on the record as hating musicals you have like 15 of them on your ipod and 
bad ones, P.S. Like, hi, Starlight Express, totally on there. <laughs> I was like, well, it's a from my childhood thing. Like, I'm just a girl who can't say no to songs that my parents listen to in the car. Like, uh, eh. But there, somewhere in particular is like, the the show does not do that many things well, and this is one of the only things. Like, there's this quiet, very short interlude before all hell breaks loose that's very direct and plaintive, and I think it's a good song. It just comes from this, I mean, was soppy the word you used? Because soppy and then sodden, yes. Yes, and uh, insipid would also be, like, <laughs> words with S's and P's in them together. Um, yeah. So, I I think this show probably should just be retired or, like, torn apart down to the studs and rebuilt, possibly entirely in Espanol, because why not? I would love to experience a version of this show that was not forced to carry the legacy of the original production. In fact, that Broadway revival that we both saw... I felt like was really hampered by the fact that it was directed by Arthur Lawrence, who wrote the book, and yeah. that it was still slavishly committed to the Jerome Robbins choreography. Like, y'all, I, I feel like that there's a certain there's a certain hysterical devotion to these musicals in their original form that hurts them as contemporary products because musicals have changed and West Side Story didn't really change and when it came back to Broadway and I would love to see a completely modernized not not the story is set with iPhones or whatever but like that the music has been orchestrated differently that it's sung differently like you said I'd love to see something that trusted the material and didn't insist on giving us the Jerome Robbins choreography but one thing that I think is really telling about that, about the unnecessary devotion to the past, is I saw a talk that Stephen Sondheim gave where he talked about the fact that they removed the Spanish translations from this production about halfway through the Broadway run. And he said that for them, it was because they had assumed going in that everyone would know the songs in the original English. And so when they were translated, that people would still know what was going on. But then they realized that many, many people in the audience did not know the songs that had been translated into Spanish, among them um, America and A Boy Like That. Right. And I just felt like, yeah, that's exactly right. Like we, That's why we have to let go of this slavish devotion to old musicals, because for most people, they don't have any cultural context. And so there's no reason for anyone to rediscover them now if we insist on treating them as things that are part of the internalized canon of every American. Because for anyone who I would argue is my age or younger, and Sarah, this is a point where our age gap, though slight, is significant. Anyone who's my age or younger did not grow up hearing this being played in the living room by their parents, did not hear the songs on the radio, doesn't know these songs. And so musicals like this are going to die if we don't give them a chance to live right and i feel this well, way I, yeah of, i yeah. also think my parents had me i mean we've had this discussion before my parents had us relatively late compared to their peer group right. so they are like it comes down to like your parents ages and what they're what they sort of you know they're like adolescent formative stuff which is why when it's doo-wop hour on cbs fm i'm fine with it because my parents were both in acapella groups at their single-sex colleges 
in the Northeast because it was that family. Like, I could probably reproduce and put on an entire production of Showboat using, like, popsicle sticks with pieces of yarn on their heads because, I, I mean, that show sucks. But I've heard it a million times. Yep. But um, I also do want I to point out... I just wish, like, it's hard to believe that... Um, that uh, Miranda didn't feel constrained in his like in his reimagining. You have to wonder what would have happened if he had just been in charge of like rebooting it, or if they sent it to like some theater lab with playwrights and um, songwriters from all over the country, and we're like, do an LA version, yeah, do an Appalachian Holler version, do a I don't know Montreal version. All Francais. Like, why not? Yeah. Because the basic story, it's like one of Campbell's seven stories. Like, you know, rivals, misunderstandings, and, you know, death. You you really can't go wrong. Except right. it, it does a bunch of times, and it's because it's two of its time, and people do feel that devotion that you talked about, I think, to keeping... The original, and look, I'm not trying to come at my birthday mate, Stephen Sondheim, by any means, but he can be soggy. Oh, and... yes. Well, I have a whole separate diatribe about what I feel is an overly worshipful attitude towards Stephen Sondheim, but we'll get to that another time. But, uh, uh, really? You know, we can get to it now if you want, because I'm pretty much done with Somewhere, so if you'd like to... If well, there's like just two, two things I want to say the about... Sacred Monster, let's do it. Two things we haven't said about Somewhere yet that I think are worth noting. I'm glad that you picked the version from the film because in the show, Maria and Tony don't sing Somewhere. It's sung, well, initially it was sung by Consuelo, and then for the Broadway revival, they created a kid named Kiddo who sings Somewhere while the rest of the cast does a dream ballet where they imagine having peace or something. That's terrible. uh, Yeah, I've always just. Yeah, I've just always thought that that was a very problematic part of the show that this and I understand that without that, there's no major dance section in the second act of West Side Story. And you don't want to have an entire second act without a major dance section. Okay, great. There's there's a whole lot of plot, a whole lot of killing. So they they sort of force this ballet into the second act. But oh, you guys come on there's god i just don't think it works at all it's so distracting from the narrative momentum it was also really distracting in the revival to have a character we'd never seen before suddenly show up and start to sing so i really prefer the way the movie does it where they just let tony and maria sing it to each other yeah, and it's one of the few times that you actually relate to them it's like i mean both of them look 30 let's face it and were 30 i think at least natalie wood was probably what 28 doesn't matter something like that yeah so But that sense of, like, they can, you know, they're boring, as we said before, and it can be a little difficult to relate to, like, by this point in the show, you're kind of, like, just checking your watch. Like, are you, are y'all going to get killed or what? Like, can we we get on with the, (laughs) the crisis, please? But that in the movie gives this sense of, like, that feeling that you have in the sort of first throb of love when you're in a bedroom together, sort of looking out the window and talking about, you know, future plans and stuff like that, that it's, you're the only people in the world. And 
I think that's really important to the success of the show and of caring about this right tragedy instead of sort of being like well at least you know some of the cool characters survived <laughs> like i don't again the show doesn't always know its own strengths but that was one decision that the movie made that i do like which is to give that put them in this bubble even if for like literally a minute and a half to just remind you like that this is why all of this is in motion is yes that they want to be the only two people in the world, but they can't stay in that bubble. And it's interesting that that's not, that that was a, you know, evolution of it in the movie and not in the original. And then kiddo, please. Well, this is probably a good time, Sarah, for us to take a little pause. You have already heard listeners in this episode, a special birthday pop chart astrology reading that uh, was done for Brona on behalf of Matthew. But here's a fun surprise. There's something else coming for Brona, which is also the debut of a feature for us here on Mark and Sarah Talk About Songs. It's the Mastus playlist. And uh, uh, Matthew selected for Brona uh, the creation of a playlist, The Essential Rick Springfield. And uh, nothing could be further sonically from what we were just talking about than (laughs) the essential Rick Springfield. And yet here we go. So we're going to do this playlist and we'll have a few more comments about West Side Story. That's how it's going to go. But let me give you a basic structure for this feature, listeners. Um, Sarah and I have both chosen three songs that we feel satisfies the brief of creating a playlist of the essential Rick Springfield, and uh, we're going to reveal them to you in reverse chronological order. We also don't know what the other one has chosen, so there's going to just be surprises all around, and uh, that's how. And then when we get to our number ones, we'll hear just brief snippets of those two songs. But I have no idea what Sarah's going to say. So Sarah, I know that you are a big rings. You are a Rick Springfield fan, as am I. So uh, why don't you kick us off and tell us what your number three is? Um, Well, I get excited when talking about Rick Springfield, and that is my number three. Uh, I should say right up top that Jesse's Girl, of course, is going to be in, like, that's the lead in his future obituary, Uh, which I hope is many years away. God bless, Um, yes. But I just didn't even consider that. Like, it's a great song. I roller skated to it many times, say fourth grader. But um, I wanted to go a little off the beaten path. Um, I really like I Get Excited because it is so early 80s and so synthy and so sincere. Like, a, a lot of Rick Springfield, who I first came to know because he was on my mother's and my soap opera, General Hospital, as Dr. Sure. Drake. Um like and then he and Jack Wagner, my first serious long-term sustained crush, both had this like, I mean, they committed utterly to like the sort of and who was the third one? Danny Ramalotti, I forget the actor's name, but he was Michael on... Damien. Yes. Yes. That they were all sort of like. And the, their characters had to be rock star. I mean, John Stamos is another example. Um, but Jack Wagner and um, Ramalati had to like be rock stars as their characters. I'm pretty sure. And then they were trying to have these careers and like the the utter commitment, the like Hasselhoffian, like this might not be good, but I'm doing it 110 percent from the opening bars to the last uh, snare 
uh, I respect that. And I get excited is like perfect for that. It's, it's cheesy. The lyrics are very ham handed, but it's effective for some reason. And that synthesizer. Love it. What's your number three? All right. So mine, I also agree with you. Jesse's girl is a great song. It also will not be appearing in my countdown. One of the joys of my adult life actually was discovering how many great Rick Springfield songs there are because I only knew Jesse's girl and then started to realize, Oh wait, no, this dude has like a deep, deep roster of songs that I really like. And one of the songs that I just love of his that I feel like is maybe not well remembered is a song that he did called uh, Taxi Dancing. Oh. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, that just missed my that just missed the cut for me. I mean, Taxi Dancing is just it's a it's a I was hot... just too embarrassed to even say it's like ordering the moons over my hammy at Denny's. Yes. It's like I don't I don't want to. Like, it's just so smurfy. <laughs> but the reason that I like it is, like, to me, it sort of captures the uh, funny quality of Rick Springfield, the self-aware quality. Like, he also had a song about being confused for Bruce Springsteen, which he released as a single, too. Like, so I just feel like Taxi Dancing is a fun song that I really enjoy listening to, and that's why it is my... And also, there's this woman who... Randy Crawford, I think, does some amazing vocals on taxi dancing as well so taxi dancing is my number three that's legit i like that choice my number two is love somebody uh it's i I don't know why it's sort of a weird like i think it's intended as a sing-along about not keeping yourself too apart from people or you're not gonna have a fun life Right. Which is sort of a weird thing, but he makes it work. And it is a good sort of like, you know, bobbing around in the car in traffic song. And it's upbeat and it's a little less uh, synth dependent than his other stuff on the Greatest Hits album. And as with most of his songs, even if like they all sort of start to sound samey after a while it's because the construction of them is flawless. Like he has a really good ear for like how long a song is supposed to be, where the um, half naked saxophone is going to start bleeding. Um, I mean, he like he and his songwriting team, if he had one, he may have written everything himself. I do not know, uh, have a really good ear for this stuff. So that's where I put uh, Love Somebody is at number two because that's a really good example of his ability to construct a song uh, flawlessly. What Sarah, we are in agreement. That is also my number two essential huh. Rick Springfield song. I love it. It's such a great, like, I love the propulsion of the song Love Somebody. And it's just so much fun. And yeah. he is so good at creating a fun song. You gotta love somebody. Oh my. I mean, like. Yeah, and just, it's really good. It's really appealing vocal, too. Yeah, and you just want to have the car windows down when you're listening to that song. For sure. Um, okay, so, Sarah, I'm very. I'm, is it possible we've selected the same number one song as well? I, I think it might be, but Taxi Dancing threw me off. So you go first this time. Okay, my number one is I've Done Everything For You. Oh, okay. Oh, so we don't have the same choice. No, we don't. Okay, well, I – so let's – so 
somewhere in here we're going to hear a little clip maybe right here this time me and my friends will do just fine i've done everything for you you've done nothing for me i've done everything for you you've done nothing for me sure. <laughs> and sammy hagar wrote this song first of all which i just love but I just think that this song is pure rock joy. I've done everything for you. You've done nothing for me. Like, the hitting of the monosyllables is so much fun to sing along with. I just... The, and he doesn't try to get too fancy with, like, an image that it's like, well, but I'm like a... You're like a squeezed lemon. No, he's just like, you suck. Here's why. Like, yeah, exactly. thank you. I appreciate There's, your Australian directness. It's just straightforward. You suck. So yeah. that's my number one choice. Sarah? Um, don't Talk to Strangers. Oh, great song. I, I mean, it's... It's creepy, but it's a credit to him that he's like, um, so I'm stalking you, and I'd prefer it if you didn't speak to anyone but me so that I can control you. But I'm the sexy rock star, so it's gonna be cool. You're seeing some slick covenantal dude. I'm begging you, please don't talk to strangers. Baby, don't you go. Don't talk to strangers. You know he'll Um, but he he does a great job in this vocal of making it sort of like sad and sexy and like you just want to comfort Rick Springfield who is like concerned that this lady is cheating on him and you want to just say hey <laughs> Dr. Nick Drake come hang out with me naked in a taxi <laughs> and don't say I did anything for you I get excited um, yeah it's a uh, it is a classic um, and very like there's a lot of Rick Springfield songs that you actually know that you forgot that you knew. Uh, speaking of Wet Hot American Summer, again, there's a Rick Springfield break in there during their like whatever montage when they go into town. That's like, oh, yeah, but the whole Greatest Hits album, like there isn't one song on there that you're like, I never heard this before. It's like, true. He's everywhere in a way you don't realize. Well, and Brona, don't I talk hope... to strangers, man. Like that opening, that opening uh, couple of bars is like immediately you're right back in, right back in the '80s. Good job. Well done, Rick, and well done, Matthew, for requesting this playlist for Brona. Brona, I hope you enjoyed it. And listeners, if you would like to have a playlist created, just shoot us an email at talkaboutsongs at gmail com, and we'll let you know how to do that. And now uh, back to some more West Side. So, Sarah, one thing I just want to bring up about West Side Story that we haven't touched on yet is the lyric in Maria, um, say it soft and it's almost like praying, something like that. That's essentially what Mm -hmm. it says. I love saying that about ugly sounding words and phrases. (laughs) (laughs) So if, you know, um, like like, uh, Benedict Cumberbatch, for instance, it's fun to be like, oh, Benedict Cumberbatch, say it soft and it's almost like praying. That's a thing I love to say. But the thing yeah. I wanted to just say about Stephen Sondheim at large, this is about to be some like hashtag unpopular opinions, and I'm a theater professional, and I'm saying it anyway. I 
Adam find... Grossworth just like opened his phone, like just unlocked his phone and is about to go ham. Anyway, go ahead. Somewhere, I, I find Stephen Sondheim to be intellectually interesting, but emotionally for me, a complete blank. And I feel like Stephen Sondheim is someone whose genius I've been hearing heralded for so long that I'm kind of skeptical about him anyway. I cannot deny and will not deny he is a genius. There are things he does lyrically that are thrilling. There are things he does musically that are thrilling. But for the most part, I think about his music more than I experience his music. And I find that there's also problematically a sense in the musical theater community that you don't have to really know how to sing to produce a Stephen Sondheim musical. <laughs> I have seen so many productions of Sondheim shows where the singer, where the acting is clearly what has been cast for instead of the singing. And it's sure it really diminishes the experience of a Sondheim show because his music is so complicated and you need to be a really gifted technical singer to find the nuance inside all of those songs. So that is also not unlike Shakespeare, in fact, where I feel like I've seen so much bad Shakespeare that I'm almost like, God, I just, I think I'd rather just live with the Shakespeare in my mind. I'm starting to feel that way about Sondheim, too, where it's like, I, it's so often terrible, and I already have to take a leap to get there anyway, that I'm like, oh, enough. Now, a few exceptions. The first act of Sunday in the Park with George, and the final song of Sunday in the Park with George, I love, and pretty much all of A Little Night Music, because I happened to see a brilliant production of A Little Night Music once. So, you know, it's not an across-the-board thing, but I just find that there's a self-conscious cleverness to what Stephen Sondheim does, and a willful elision of emotion in favor of intelligence that, for me, is a bit of a turn-off. And I know that this is also largely about personal taste, because I just like musicals that have a more contemporary pop sound. That's also just a true right. thing for me. But anyway, those are my thoughts, Sarah. Well, it's it's interesting that you bring that up. And after discussing um, the idea that the songs from this show need to exist like outside the show, and that's how we like them better. And also that the songs seem to lend themselves to interpretations other than the ones that are in the show taken all together. Right. My favorite Sondheim song, I think is actually sent in the clowns as mm. sung by Frank Sinatra on one of his greatest hits albums. It was um, in the, it was towards, it was later. So he sounded a little raspy or he didn't have that uh, golden voice so much anymore, but he introduces it as a, you know, wonderful marriage of words and music by Mr. Stephen Sondheim. And then it's this very, I listened to it like by happenstance once during a breakup, seriously half a lifetime ago, and just, it, it allowed me to have this cleansing sob about the situation that was very helpful, and Sinatra's kind of rueful um, take on the song, it could get a little bombastic, but I'm wondering if Sondheim doesn't like deliberately construct these songs so that they have to be uh like curated in song by the singer does that make mm. any sense well it does make sense and i think you're probably onto something which just reiterates my point that you cannot 
have fucking Helena Bonham Carter singing Mrs. Lovett in the Sweeney Todd movie because she does not have the musical aptitude to curate a Sondheim song. Right. You can't have Anna Lee Ashford playing Dot in Sunday in the Park with George because she was brilliant. Anyway. Well, Sarah, <laughs> I uh, I feel like at this... Oh, where would I be if I did not drop this fun fact, though? It's important that we all remember the film soundtrack of West Side Story, not the cast recording, but the soundtrack for the film, is the longest-running number one album in history at 54 weeks. Wow. Over a year, this was the best-selling album in America. I would also like to add that I looked for a version by Yvonne Elliman and did not find one. Damn! If it is out there, somewhere, please let us know. Until next time, let's send in the clowns. Hey, Sarah, I think it's time for a bumper. What do you think? Uh, I think it's been time, Mark. So what do listeners need to know? What info do we have to get in here? They need to know that Mark and Sarah Talk About Songs is hosted by me, Mark Blankenship, and you, Sarah D. Bunting, and also edited by you, Sarah D. Bunting. That is true. Uh, today's theme song was by your fine-feathered husband, Andrew Byrne. And yes. what else do they need to know? They need to know how to reach us. That's important. So you guys, if you want to contact us, we would love to hear from you. Let us know song requests, uh, if you'd like to buy an ad, if you want to have me do your birthday pop chart reading, any of that. We truly do love to hear from you. And you can reach us on email at talkaboutsongs at gmail.com on twitter at talksongs or on facebook at facebook.com slash mastus.podcast but sarah i think there's something else they need to know uh there is and that is that for a small monthly donation you listener could become a patron and producer of mastus your own self uh donating at our patreon page which is at patreon.com slash mastus really helps us out, keeps the lights on here at Editing HQ, and gives you access to members-only uh, audio content, polls. You might get to like pick our episode that we do, and for a very large one-time donation, you can get us to come to your house anywhere in the continental U.S., and we will record an episode in your lap. We really will. So to get all the info on that, you just need to go to p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash mastus that's patreon.com slash mastus and now i think the last thing that you guys need to know which maybe you already figured out but we're telling you anyway is that i'm mark and i'm sarah and this is mark and mark, sarah sarah talk, talk about, about songs closer that's best ever i think yeah <laughs> Don't you love the farce? My fault, I fear I thought that you'd want what I want Sorry, my dear But where are the clowns? Send in the clowns Don't bother, they're here
Sarah talk about songs They talk, talk, talk about Talk about songs Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.